These are the things that I learned during the 28th week of 2011, July 10th through July 16th. July 10th. Mission Control has a few extra gestures built in. I really think that macOS 10.7 Lion was a controversial upgrade. Released two years after 10.6 Snow Leopard on July 20th, 2011, Lion was an attempt to bring the operating system closer to iOS in terms of look and feel to mixed results. At this point, I was going by the technical previews and demonstrations of the operating system and hadn't gotten my hands on it yet, but don't worry, I would very soon. If we're judging the software by looks, I thought it was pretty atrocious. A lot of weird skeuomorphic designs that half worked on the iPhone and iPad were now suddenly invading the desktop environment, and honestly, it looked like they were making a mockery rather than legitimate software. One of the biggest changes made in Lion had to do with the way one scrolls up and down in lists, menus, and articles. It was apparently decided that the time-tested, user-approved method of scrolling had to be flipped over to somehow simulate the movement done on a touchscreen, except for, you know, you weren't doing it on a touchscreen on macOS. Rather, you were doing it on a trackpad or a scroll wheel. I couldn't stand this change, and it was the first thing I reverted in the settings on any Lion installation I came across. Regarding the visuals, one of the biggest offenders was the calendar app, then known as iCal, gaining a fake leather texture over everything, a stark contrast to the rest of the brushed silver window chrome in the rest of the OS. Looks weren't the only issue here, though. I distinctly recall Lion being slower than Snow Leopard in most regards. Even if it was a trickle of milliseconds, the OS felt heavier to me, and that mattered a lot if other factors compounded on top of it. To this day, Snow Leopard was considered the purest form of macOS in terms of its raw speed and functionality, released as a performance update to 10.5 Leopard. It was the benchmark to clear for years to come, and to be honest, I'm not fully certain if it ever has been surpassed by any update since. So sure, Lion had a lot to live up to, but Apple didn't have to bungle it this badly. A lot of apps were reworked and swapped out, including retiring the dedicated window management apps, Spaces, and Exposé in favor of a brand new, all-in-one utility known as Mission Control. Regarding some of the extra gestures built in, the Ars Technica review of macOS Lion by John Syracusa says it best, quote, Moving the cursor, or dragging a window, to the upper right corner of the screen causes a panel with a plus character to appear. Clicking this creates a new space. Holding down the option key makes dashboard-style close widgets appear on any non-full-screen window spaces except the original desktop space, which can never be closed. The biggest limitation of this new arrangement is that spaces are now confined to a one-dimensional line of virtual desktops, Four-finger trackpad swiping between spaces felt great, but there's no wraparound when you hit the end, end quote. I do admit, the four-finger swiping for spaces felt great, although I'm not 100% certain this was a new gesture. As I remember having this in Snow Leopard, 
I could be wrong on that though. Since Lion's Mission Control gripped Windows by application, a feature I wasn't super into, one could use a two-finger spreading gesture on top of those window groups to expand them, demonstrated by Craig Federighi at WWDC 2011. The other shortcuts are nice conveniences, especially the option to drag a window to a new space automatically by bringing it to the upper right corner. Mission Control required some small tweaks to truly feel like a polished and complete product, and that came later on in future versions of macOS. But it was an okay first step, at least. July 11th, CSS3 Gradients. Oh, I loved this. Before it became a feature within CSS itself, if you wanted to design a gradient that blends two colors, you had to know how to do it in an image editor. After you've hopefully designed a good gradient, you either then had to configure it as a background, if it were a fixed size, or design it with a narrow width and repeat it horizontally. Such a gradient then had to be saved as an image file and referenced in the HTML code. This made designing websites for all possible monitor resolutions limited, and while you could cover most of the bases, larger sizes would eventually outscale your ability to design a good-looking background gradient. When CSS3 rolled out, this concern became moot. Gradients in CSS3 allow you to define all of the parameters in the code instead of having to make your own images. Multiple colors may be defined with angles, color stops, banding preferences, and many other available configurations. This simplified the whole process and opened up the door to much more responsive, adaptable design opportunities where you let the code take care of the sizing work for you, as opposed to having to design a static image, hoping it was close to one size fits all. This type of simplicity reminds me of how one can use image maps to define clickable image regions across one photo, as opposed to breaking it up into partitions and then stitching it back together using a table. Also, you barely even need to worry about knowing the specific CSS code for gradients, as plenty of gradient generator websites exist where you can simply visually design it, copying the code it gives you. Keeping the gradient design entirely within the CSS assists with separating content from the layout, keeping awkward links and handshakes to specific files that you once had to keep track of out of the mix. I was pretty quick to switch over to this method for the websites I was managing during this time. July 12th, ASP Forms. It's pretty funny that in the same week, I was working with cutting-edge web technology while simultaneously working with unbelievably ancient and obsolete ones. ASP Forms were so old that I was actually having a bit of trouble finding information about them without skipping past a few search result pages. Most ASP forms are now likely done with ASP.NET, a superseding platform. It's mostly the same idea, but with newer technology under the hood. The original ASP, short for Active Server Pages, is a Microsoft-developed web language that integrates with HTML and the like. While HTML is a client-sided language, ASP is server-sided, meaning that any processing is done not by your browser or computer, but by a remote server. Luckily, I didn't need to know all that much about the underlying tech, 
to perform what I needed to do here, which was to tune up a sign-up form for a commuter student website I was working on during my summer job, among a few other forms for various sign-ups regarding student involvement. After re-examining the files, the nicest adjective I could describe the code for this form was ugly AF. At least it looked pretty good visually on the form side of things, so the end user didn't see the chaos on the other end. Designing the form with HTML elements was slightly out of the ordinary, in fact. Microsoft offers tools within Visual Studio to create the form and automatically generate the code for you, but instead I opted to build it in a regular text editor using standard HTML so it could easily validate against standards. I needed to work with one of the university's system administrators to get the form working properly, as ASP requires a server component to process the submitted information. I did not have access to this piece, so it ended up being a lot of frustrating trial and error, but we did get it working in the end. I have a memory that this form was actually created before I started there, so I was actually working with a legacy codebase and an existing server configuration that I didn't have a full grasp on. It's a classic trope in programming. I'm amazed that it was salvageable, and for the short time that we needed the form, it held together just fine. By the next day, I had received emails affirming that the forms were functional and the tests all worked. Mission accomplished. July 13th. Archangel staff first for better AP scaling, with a 200 AP difference by the end of the game. Welcome back to more League of Legends stuff. So we've already discussed the Archangel staff item in a previous episode, and how it provides a perfectly serviceable amount of resources for the standard mana-based caster champion in the game. After doing some experimenting, I found that if the item is built before you move on to other items in your build, the ability power scaling factor works out more in your favor compared to if it is built later. There could be multiple reasons for this. At the time, Archangel Staff was an item that has more meaningful returns in the early to late mid-game, but started to fall off as you go past the 30-minute mark when other characters start completing end-game items and level up past a certain point. The item granted ability power equal to 3% of the champion's maximum mana, buffed up from 2% in the game's July 29, 2010 patch. The staff provided ability power and scaling, which was more attractive in the early stages, before most characters had a chance to buy more expensive items to give the same buffs. As to why the AP scaling was somehow better as a result of building AS first, I'm not entirely certain. My guess is that it fed off of certain other runes and masteries, which skewed when the numbers shifted, providing depth in terms of when is the best time an item should be built. Modern versions of the Archangel staff are similar yet different to the 2011 version, offering an additional upgrade to an item known as Seraph's Embrace, which buffs the mana benefits even more. That being said, the overall effects have been reworked and tweaked a bit as well, that of which I can't really speak towards, as I haven't played the game in at least seven years now, not to mention that the runes and masteries systems have been completely reworked and combined in the years since. If you're new to League of Legends and want to play a caster champion that uses mana, 
I'd recommend looking into the Archangel Staff item as one of your key builds though. July 14th, more about HTML and ASP forms. This is a continuation of the thing learned on July 12th, more or less. Unfortunately, I don't have any notes distinguishing these two days from one another, so I'm just going to gracefully skip over this day and refer back to July 12th. Woohoo! July 15th, selling on eBay. When you get a new phone with new tech, you suddenly think about all the new possibilities that open up to you. Weirdly, one of my thoughts were, now that I had a half-decent camera, was why not use that to take photos of old stuff that I could sell? It would make money, right? Well, ideas are sometimes easier said than done. I made some strives regarding figuring out how to sell things on eBay, such as an unopened, factory-sealed VHS copy of Sleeping Beauty from the 1990s. I was taken aback by the terms, conditions, and fees required to do so, however. After you start digging into the fine print, it sort of turns you off of the entire site. I had a theoretical list of things I could put up for sale, but at least at the time, there was a limited amount of time you could list an item, and even then, there were weird charges involved, such as listing fees, and of course, the cost of shipping, which you often had to cover if you wanted any hope of someone buying your small item. I made a spreadsheet to math it all out, and listed two items as a test. None of them sold, and the profits would have been minimal even if they did. So in the end, the red tape kept me from pursuing this idea. I really wanted it to work, but the little gotchas were what killed this idea. After looking at modern-day eBay selling fees, it seems that they've let up on the actual listing fees for the first 200 items now, so I'm glad they at least cleaned up that ridiculousness from a decade ago. There's also very recent developments where eBay dropped PayPal and its fees, but increased their native fees, but it seems some sellers aren't very happy about that. I don't know enough details to make a judgment on whether or not that's a good or bad move. I do know there is a lucrative market for alternate storefronts online, though. While eBay is huge, their policies don't please everyone, and some folks like myself don't like all the hoops you need to jump through, or hidden fees that jump out at you. Alternatives like Craigslist, Etsy, LetGo, etc. have all surfaced in the years since, so at least you have options. And finally, July 16th, a quote from an Ars Technica article, quote, If your new system has a regular magnetic hard disk, it is a good idea to install your applications before you transfer a lot of data. This way, the applications will be stored on the outer, faster part of the disk platters, so that they load faster." End quote. This opening line came from an article posted on July 12, 2011 on ArsTechnica.com regarding how to do a clean and fresh installation of the newly released macOS Lion without doing an in-place upgrade. Such a task would be desirable if you had a macOS installation that had been through the equivalent of multiple world wars in terms of usage and cruft buildup. And oftentimes, the best way to fix pileups of issues is just to wipe the hard drive clean and do a fresh new installation, restoring files and applications from backups later on. In those days, solid-state disks were a fringe luxury compared to today, 
Most discs were for the most part still 5400 RPM spinning mechanical platter hard drives. 5400 RPM wasn't the fastest you could get, and it could get dog slow if it started to age out or show signs of fatigue. The way data is written to these types of discs is a physical operation, sort of like how a needle reads a vinyl record. Now imagine this, but with bidirectional data transfer. Discs wouldn't always write related data right next to one another, and over time they would become what is known as fragmented, requiring either the operating system or user to perform a software-based remediation known as defragmenting. In later years, this became more of an autonomous background task until mechanical disks started to fade away in favor of the significantly more performant solid-state disks once they became financially viable. Anyways, back to the quote though. When one is doing a brand new, fresh installation to a newly wiped clean disk, the operating system is first installed, and there's no real getting around that. Next, since you still have a relatively clean and empty disk, if you want to possibly avoid fragmentation issues down the road and keep disk-seeking efficiency at a maximum, you'd want to next install all of your applications, one after another, to ensure they are all on the, quote, outer, faster part of the disk platters so they can load faster, end quote, as the article states. Once that's done, you load in your documents, photos, and other personal items. So in case you are planning to downgrade to a system with a mechanical drive, not that I assume you ever would in 2021, now you have a bit of an idea as to how mechanical hard drives process data. As a side note, if you want to see a dramatized hard disk repair at the mechanical level, check out the fourth episode of the first season of AMC's Halt and Catch Fire, to see a rough idea of how data on a failed hard drive might be recovered in the 1980s. I'm not going to say it's 100% accurate, but it's a really fun watch. And that concludes the things learned this week. I do have one extra topic though I want to talk about. On July 14th, I made a shift window configuration for SimCity 4, such that it may run in a borderless window as opposed to operating in a full screen mode. The idea of a borderless window was becoming increasingly popular around this time due to the rising prevalence of multi-monitor computer use, where the keyboard and mouse aren't locked to a single full-screen application that is stuck in a specific screen resolution. There is a mild performance hit when it comes to running this mode, which might have been more impactful in 2011, but nowadays it's not that big of a deal unless you're running a really resource-intensive game. The rise of streaming also made this setting attractive, as streaming software might have difficulty locking onto a full-screen application or letting you set the capture parameters after it launched and took over the display. Shift window comes into the equation for games that do not support this feature natively. Originally written to resolve an annoyance in EVE Online, the general idea of shift window is that you first configure the game in a windowed mode with as close of a screen resolution to your native one. Then, shift window is invoked to delete the borders around the windowed game and stretch it to the full width and height of the screen without warping anything. Additional granular options exist as necessary, including hotkey activation and the ability to specify a certain monitor. 
SimCity 4 was a game that was pretty resource intensive, especially for my laptop of the era. It was designed without a dedicated borderless window mode, so that was why I needed this application. I used it previously for League of Legends for the very same reason, before the borderless mode became an officially supported option after an update. Anyways, that was just a little history on Shift Window in SimCity 4. Week 28 of 2011 is in the history books. If you made it to the end, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Things Learned. If this is your first time tuning in, thanks for stopping by, and I hope you stick around and listen to this podcast on the regular. If you are a returning listener, thanks for coming back, and I'm glad you're here as always. Check out the show notes for articles and pages that contain details about the things I learned this week in 2011 if you want to learn more. Music credits are also available in the same place. If you like this show, do me a favor and give it a good word on the Apple Podcasts ratings, as it helps out with discovery and statistical things. Also, if you think you know someone who might like a podcast like this, be sure to let them know about things learned. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you next time.